If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Durrimple. And we are joined once again by the fabulous, the marvellous, the um, I mean, absolutely mesmerising Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, author of Persians, The Age of the Great Kings. We are loving your storytelling of, of these ancient characters who we know so little about here in the West in particular. We were talking in the last episode about Darius the Great, his sort of origin story. But we should take this now to the point where he starts to have some trouble with the Greeks. So let, can we start with the Ionian revolt of, of 499? Just, I mean, when we talk about Ionia, Ionia is the, the Greek Ionian islands, like Corfu, that's what we're talking about. That's right. But also, the, it's the name that we also give to that whole city-state system, which is now the western coast of Turkey. All that fancy hotel-fronted... That's right, and wonderful <laughs> wonderful beaches and all of this. So basically, we're dealing with the great cities of Sardis that we mentioned uh, in a previous episode, Halicarnassus, where Herodotus himself was born. Isn't it curious, of course, Herodotus yes. was born uh, a Persian subject, really? We, Which kind know? of explains why he's so pissed off with them. Precisely. It really is interesting. Um, the great city of, of Ephesus, of course, was already a, a huge port uh, at this time. So it's all uh, Miletus. So it's all of these very much interconnected city-states. And these have been under Persian rule since the time of Cyrus? Since the time of Cyrus, absolutely. And by and large, they've been treated fairly well. There are always some discontented groups who are pushing against the local Persian satraps who have been placed there. But the satraps have been very careful in the way that they govern the area. And they're definitely Persian. They're, they're, not, they're not Greeks who've been co-opted. There are Greeks who've been co-opted, but they form the, the second system, if you like, in the tier of, uh, of government. The Persians use these people all the time, and they're very, very aware of what they can learn about uh, local situations from these people, and they never try to change that at all. We have a very clear image of how much the Greeks don't much like the Persians from Herodotus. Do we have any idea of sort of the cl colonial auteur with which the uh, Persians treat these pesky Greeks at the, at the western end of their empire? You know, this is this is what's missing, and what's really remarkable is that the Greek historiography doesn't expose any of that itself. You'd almost imagine that Herodotus and others who wrote at his time would be full of Persians lording it over others, but they're not, which suggests to me that they didn't in that case. Now, you know, they're still colonized areas and they're having to pay their taxes, but the Persians are not forcing them to change anything else about their lives. They are recruiting men from Asia Minor into the Persian army, but that's a given. You know, Greek soldiers, whether you're from Ionia or from the mainland, will always make up the, the mercenary armies of, of ancient armies anyway. Why was that? Why would the Greeks always have made up mercenaries? Just because, I mean, were they particularly good at fighting? Or? They, were, they were good fighters, and I think that they were, all, they were opportunists. They were always looking for the, the, the best cash 
uh, basically. And the, the the person who had access to the most cash was was always the Persian king. So you know the the whole idea, you know, jumping ahead here, I know, but um, this whole idea of a clash of civilizations between all Greeks and all Persians is an absolute make-believe. It just never happened because there were so many Greeks fighting on the Persian side. Well, it sort of starts with kind of a, a rumble, a local, local rumble uh, uh, over trade. So, I mean, the Greeks of Ionia have been allowed to trade. They've been allowed to do, and they get permission to do yes. this from the satrapy. You know, the Persians give them their blessing. They say, you can do this. And actually, the revolt that takes place in, in 499, this is because somebody sticks their oar in, and it's a, rel- a relative of Darius who kind of does this. I- explain more about why this happens. It seems to be a, a, a bit of mismanagement going on and, and a clash of communications uh, more than anything else. The trade routes that the Ionians had enjoyed were as free as, as they ever had been, but there was a move afoot to try to limit the amount of trade, but also um, for the Persians to increase their taxation in the area. And of course, nobody likes a tax rise. Uh, and so this is where difficulties began to arise. What's really interesting is that when the rebellion started, it spread like a disease. You know, it, it, it suddenly pockmarked all of the city-states and they all kind of had a pushback against um, the Persian presence there. What they actually went for as well is, was a more symbolic pushback um, than anything else. They they weren't necessarily skirmishes in the streets, but they were destroying things like the satraps' personal gardens and so forth, the paradisoi. You know, so they were they were destroying symbols of Persianism in the areas. But I mean, this is this is all. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a a, a guy called Aristagoras. Aristagoras of Miletus. Uh, Aris, thank you so much, Aristagoras. So Aristagoras is is leading an expedition which he's been given full permission to do so by the Persians. But then one of Darius's cousins decides to get involved with this. So what happens there? Because this seems to be the flashpoint. It's a power struggle, really, about who has the most authority um, in, this, in this particular trade expedition. Nothing, nothing more than that. But, you know, that's the way that wars can often start, isn't it? You know, of, of a personal slight more than anything. There's no great rationale behind it at all. It's not as though... The um, Ionian cities uh, had contemplated this. You know, some kind of great rebellion was being plotted from the ground up. It, it was a, it was a, an unexpected spark due to a, a clash of communications that really happened. Okay, so he's fallen out with Darius's kinsmen, uh, and now he's really scared that you know actually you don't fall out with Darius's family and get away with it. So he starts um, Aristagoras calling for help from other Greek states, including Sparta. I mean, and then, and they are. They are receptive because they're also slightly chafing or a little bit pissed off about taxes or not Sparta so much, but they want superiority over the land and the seas of Greece. Now the Spartans are, are a kind of society who are who are so out there. I mean, they're so completely bizarre. They form a, a world which is unlike anything the rest of Greece do. They are military driven. They are absolutely the the sort of uber military force. That's all their society is about. And what they want to do is land grab. And all that stuff about Spartan babies being left out in the open, is that all true? I doubt very much if it's all true, but let's put it this way. There was a very strong machismo culture. Come back victorious or come back on your shield, that kind of thing. Indeed, all of this kind of thing. And what they wanted certainly was land. They wanted uh, access to the seacoast and therefore to shipping and to trade. 
Okay, so that that was their thing, and they realized actually that the cards were actually in Persia's hands, and either they cooperate with Persia, or they push against it. And now is the time that they have to decide what to do uh, about that. So that's how the the mainland is brought in. Okay, so they, I mean, it's Sardis that they decide is the weak link, as the weakest area. Yeah, yeah. So what do they do? I mean, how, what what do they do to Sardis? So there are rebellions there, first of all, in the Satrapal Palace, uh, then in the government buildings around the city. Trashing the gardens, very bad manners. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that really shocks the, the Persians. And then uh, looting in the city streets and so forth. And from there on in, the news of uh, a kind of successful pushback against the Persians begins to spread. I guess that Sardis becomes the focal point of this because it has the longest history of occupation in the area, uh, but also I think it's the most settled of the Persian areas. It has a Persianate identity, which is stronger than anywhere else. So they push back on, on that uh, in particular. Also, don't forget, it's, it's still exceptionally wealthy. Sardis today is about 10 miles inland but in antiquity, it was right on the coast. Was it? Mm. Yes. So its harbors were 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 really lucrative. Absolutely. Just as, uh, of course, you know, Ephesus uh, was as well. I mean, you can still just about see the sea if you stand in Ephesus. But all of those great cities were essentially port cities. This is essentially what the Ionian Revolt is about. It's about access to those ports and shipping. So the Ionians get the Byzantines to join in. Meanwhile, the Persians invade Cyprus. It all begins to take off. The Cypriot thing is really fascinating, you know, because the Cypriots have always been so aligned with the peoples of the Levant, in particular the Phoenicians, of course. Now, the Phoenicians are under the Persians. They retain some kind of independence, but there is a satrap. The Phoenicians, we should say, are trading peoples. These are the kind of great seafaring peoples who live in the, the area now we call Lebanon. But they extend right across the North African coast as far as Carthage and Spain. Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Great traders and, and colonizers themselves. Now, they were always under the authority of Persian rulers. And in fact, Persian great kings produced a great deal of coinage from the cities like Tyre, Sidon, and Byblos. Cyprus is a different matter. Cyprus, too, was an island of city-states, but somehow it managed to, to re retain a sense of independence from the Persians. Uh, it was definitely you know, under the Persian watch uh, and couldn't do much to challenge Persian authority, but they had a, a very strange relationship with, with, with Cyprus, where the city-states maintained their own kings, maintained their own coinages as well, and weren't directly under Persian control. So there are different elements of control going on here. And so city-states which were closer to the Levantine coast, so Salamis, not the Greek Salamis, but Cyprian Salamis, was far more Persianized than, say, the city of Paphos on the western side of the island, which looked out into the, the European Mediterranean. Yeah, so so it's not, not a big landmass to have such divergent views in it. No, absolutely, absolutely. So what does uh, Darius do when he's got this sort of chafing going on? I mean, it's interesting that he doesn't just come and wipe everything out. Yeah, you know, this is one of the huge questions about, okay, what, what, do, what do the Persians do when they conquer a place? There is no format, no fixed format for what you can expect a Persian force to do. If we were looking at Assyria or Rome, we could say we can guarantee A, B, and C will be done. Every time they conquered a territory, they approached it uh, with a fresh set of eyes. They realized 
that a kind of democratic urge had begun in the Ionian cities and had been there for a good 50 years already, and they did nothing to temper that whatsoever. They allowed a kind of democracy to develop. That didn't challenge the Persian king at all, because he's used to very different forms of localized government across the whole empire, and he's not interested in the slightest in how the territories run themselves. He's only interested in the end result, and that is that wealth, the money, the tribute, the tax keeps pouring in on a regular basis, and that there are men for his armies drawn from all over the, the world as well. Right, okay. But but he does get woken to the fact that he may need ships, because if this happens again, he needs a fleet. Yes. This is something that the Persians, of course, is very new to the Persians. They'd never really needed uh, a fleet of their own properly before. When Cambyses had conquered Egypt, for instance, he essentially uh, requisitioned Phoenician ships uh, and utilized those to, to invade the coast of Egypt. Darius realized he needs a sitting fleet uh, of ships for the first time. And so this becomes one of his number one goals. And from there on in, actually, um, the Persian fleet is always present when he starts building ships with the aid of the Phoenicians. And they're built in modern Lebanon? In, in Lebanon itself, in Phoenician style, very different to the rather cumbersome triremes of the Greeks. So what do they look like? These are narrow, proud swift ships with a lot of sail power, whereas the triremes tend to be bulkier, heavier, with a lot of oarsman power. Both can cut through the, the, the oceans quickly, but employing very different forces. And are the Greek ones more specifically aligned for naval battles? For warfare, I think, yes, abso absolutely. Whereas the, the Persian fleets they adopt from, from Phoenicia um, are swifter, they can control territories quicker, they can nip around places. Uh, and don't forget, you know, when, when, you, when you set out um, on any kind of voyage in antiquity, you cling to the coast as much as possible. So these are really good ships for dipping in and out of harbours all the time. Okay, so I mean, he's, he's sort of, you know, he's tooled up better than he was, but he's still not expecting difficulty and he has reason to feel quite comfortable because he's sending envoys to these places, reminding them of their, their duties and their fealty. But... The envoy who gets sent to Sparta has his head separated from his body. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so um, Spartan bravado, that's what that's all about. You don't do that in diplomacy. You, no, it doesn't break, help. It's just it's breaking all the laws. You just don't do it. You know, diplomats are supposed to be, you know, completely neutral. They're, you know, they're, and yes, it's <laughs> my students are obsessed with this scene. You may know the 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 dreadful movie 300. Which oh, I've yes. never actually seen it. Uh, oh, oh, my oh, goodness. Oh, William, you should treat yourself. Uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> Despite being a, a, a oh, Persophile, you'd bizarre. recommend it, would you? Uh, oh. It is. <laughs> it is an extraordinary <laughs> adventure into ancient yeah. history. It's also, it's also myth-making, which is actually something I like about the film, because, you know, we deal with myth. When we deal with what happens in the Ionian Revolt, by and large, it, the, the history m morphs into myth quite quite quickly. Okay. The, the the scene that we have in in the movie Three Hundred is really remarkable because this Persian appears. First of all, he's 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 a, a black guy, yeah. um, so you know, strange casting decision there. Um, and his his clothing but covered in gold. It's he's covered so in gold, freakishly, like rings around he's his kind of neck bling and rings hanging from his ears. Yeah, yeah a bling, a full of bling, absolutely, and dripping with human skulls, yes. which are wrapped around his body as well. 
and he kind of makes this bravado speech, you know, bow to the great king or you will feel my wrath kind of stuff. And the Spartans, How many Gerard times have Butler, you seen this, top, Lloyd? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> too, yeah. too many times, yeah. too many. Gerard Butler, who plays the Scottish that, Spartan. Yeah, the, 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 the Tartan Spartan. The Tartan Spartan, <laughs> yeah. yes. With one mighty push from his, his, his powerful leg, uh, holds this this poor um, ambassador uh, into this this giant death pit. No, no, it beheading in that particular version, mm. but that's what happens there. But it breaks all of the rules, and I yeah. mean, Darius is mortified by it. We're now back in history, not in uh, yeah, yeah, back sorry, into yeah, back yeah. into real history now. But what is history? What William? is history? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you know, and especially when recited by Herodotus, what is history? So he's no, no, he's not impressed. <laughs> no, not impressed at all. You don't do this to Darius. You just you do not just do it. Don't do it. So, so what is his response then? Because he's got a whole new fleet to play with now, hasn't he? His response gets heavy, as you would expect. You, you, you know, you you push the tiger too much with a stick, and the tiger will eventually roll back. And this is what uh, Darius does. He sends mercenary forces. Uh, by land uh, into Anatolia, and then they march towards the west. And at the same time, he puts together, he readies his fleet uh, and begins to to pick out um, those harbours of all of these great city-states. We remember this as the great event of the, the great Persian-Greek clash. It's in, our, it's in all our uh, textbooks and everything. Do the Persians, is this a big deal for the Persians or are they really kind of more interested in what's going on in the East? It's something they could live without, certainly. It's an aggravation on the far western edge of empire. They've got other things to think about. Darius is always more concerned about Egypt and Babylon. They're the places he needs to placate, make sure they're happy, make sure they are running smoothly. All of his interest is in India. Where the money is, yeah. Where the money is, absolutely. Where, and if this pesky revolt, we call it the Ionian revolt. I don't think he saw it that way. If these little insurrections had blown up in uh, in the West, he could have probably kept all of his troops in the East and they would have conquered more of India. But history doesn't play out that way. But the way in which the myth of Marathon, the battle, the final battle that plays out in all of this, has emerged in the historiography is is fascinating. The whole of Herodotus works up to this, doesn't it? He's, he writes this enormous book, and it's all aimed at this climax. Okay, and you know what? We're going to stop there and come back after this break with Marathon. Join us then. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So this is a marathon, not a sprint here. We can't we can't rush through this because it's such a very, very good story. So just before the break, you were saying, you know, that Herodotus is, is the person who kind of tells this story that most people know here. And he's a local man. This is a big deal for him because this is happening on his doorstep. Yeah, absolutely. He's a, he's a, a halicarnassan, you know, he's, he's brought up in the in the shadow of all of this world. So, I mean, as far, as far as he's concerned and as far as the people of Marathon are concerned, you know, the Persian fleet is coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. They can, we can hear the drums, they're getting nearer. They, they've gone to Eritrea and they've sacked that place. Eritrea, we should clarify, is a city in Ionia, not the next door neighbour to Ethiopia. Absolutely. And of course, what, what is really irksome is the Athenians get involved in all of this. Mm. You know, the Athenians always see themselves as the defenders of the Hellenes, um, they've they've got a mighty inflated opinion of themselves, and of course they get in there. We should remind listeners who didn't hear the last episode that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that Lloyd in the last episode described the Parthenon as the, a Nissan hut compared to shed, a, a, a shed, shed, shed. potting shed, <laughs> shed compared to uh, Persepolis. <laughs> now, according to Herodotus, what we get because the Athenian presence in Sardis, you know, this liberation, Operation Sardian Freedom. Um, so irks Darius that it kind of sits in his mind uh, for all time. And he says, you know, I will have my revenge on these Athenians. Uh, and one day I will burn down um, their world all, all around them. And, and he tells this story of how Darius takes an arrow and he uh, shoots it into the heavens. And as he does so, he he, he, he says, you know, oh, Zeus, calls on a Greek god, oh, Zeus, so let me have my revenge upon the Athenians as well. And there's also this wonderful story that is told by Herodotus that um, when Her when Darius sits down to dinner every night, he has a, a member of his court whisper in his ear, oh, sire, remember the Athenians. Well, only Herodotus could write that because I think the Athenians were really the last thing on Darius's mind most of the time. Can I just ask you, when, I mean, when you do this, when you question Herodotus, do you get called anciently woke? I mean, what is the world's reaction to this? Constantly, constantly. There are things which you do not touch. Tom Harrison, whom I adore as uh, uh, you know, a person and an ancient historian, when he reviewed uh, my book Persians, you know, he just couldn't get past the fact that I don't see Herodotus as a reliable source and that, and that, <laughs> and that in fact, I, you know, I see him as, 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 a, as a manipulator and a wonderful a myth teller, spin, a spinner of tales, you know. What does the what do the lovers of the Spartans like Paul Cartledge think of your work? Are they suspicious? No, they're a lot more uh, relaxed about it because we do know, you know, in later generations that Sparta and Persia actually have a very, very close relationship. And really it's it's the money from Persia 
under later kings like Artaxerxes I, Artaxerxes II, that pours into Sparta and really makes them the most powerful of all armies in the Hellenic world. How interesting. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I took us on a little diversion, but it was worth it. Okay, so the Athenian army has marched into Marathon. They are blockading the Persian advance on Athens. And soon those Athenians are joined by others from elsewhere. And then there's news coming. Look, Sparta's coming. Sparta's coming. We're going to be fine. Sparta, Gerard Butler is on his way. <laughs> and it all will be well. So, I mean, what, what are the numbers here? Can you put numbers on these forces uh, facing each other? I am not going to go down the numbers route. Oh, because, why? Be, no, I will not be forced down that route because the ancient sources always inflate. Okay. So they'll say something like, oh, an army of 50 million approached on the Persian <laughs> side and they fought an army of only 20. A hundred Spartans. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, this is, this is a constant game that ancient historians are playing and is still being played out to now uh, amongst contemporary historians who are trying to juggle, you know, impossible to know what these forces were. Okay. They seem to have been balanced, is what I would say. Oh, really balanced? Oh, I always thought the, the, the Persians outnumbered the Greeks. Okay, they didn't. Not, not so very oh, much. I mean, if right. you think about it, Persians have to get their mercenaries from wherever they are stationed into one particular place. It, it's not the whole Persian army moving mm -hmm. into Ionia. It can never have been that at all. I think it's more balanced than Herodotus certainly would ever have suggested. And let's get the geography sorted out. Where is Marathon? It's uh, situated uh, on the Greek mainland in a, a very uh, safe harbour, just inland um, from the sea itself. Mm. And, and all right, you don't want to put numbers on the troops. Okay? No. But they are, but let, well, let's just, well, all right, fine, fine, be like that then, fine. But let's talk about how they were armed because you've got the Greek infantry. They've got bronze, they've got metal, they've got shields, they've got armour. This is the famous hoplites, am I pronouncing it correctly? The hoplites, yeah. We've got to, again, we need to be very careful about this kind of thing. We you know, Hollywood has done us no service. Well, the Persians only wear gold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in their version. But, but yeah. generally, like the 1950s movies and all this, sort of, we, we see armies in antiquity as uniform, don't we? You know, if you just think of Ben Hur and legions of Romans all in red marching together, armies were not like that. They were far more ragtags than, than that kind of thing. Very often, these men were fighting with equipment that their granddads had used before them or something they brought from home. It wasn't as though everybody was turned out in, you know, span new armor sponsored by the state or anything. All right. But who, but who, who is more tooled up? Tooled up in different ways is what it's about. Hoplite fighting is about close contact. Okay. So you have your shield and you have your short sword. And with that short sword, you can do terrible damage because you've got to look into the whites of the eyes in order to do it. Stab, 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 and then butter with a shield, and then men will form around you to form buttresses and so forth. The Persians, a very different approach because they're taking mercenaries from all over the world. There is going to be some of this hoplite fighting going on. But the Persians, of course, also employ spears. They are spearmen and archers. That is the standard way of fighting in uh, uh, amongst the ancient Iranians. Darius has a wonderful inscription on his tomb, and it says that Ahura Mazda made him a soldier. As a spearman, I am a good spearman. As a bowman, I am a good bowman. As a horse rider, I am a good horse rider. And those are the three military aspects that the Persians value the most. Do they have swords? They do have swords, but they are not reliant upon swords at all. The mercenary soldiers, some of the mercenaries fight with swords, but if you're looking for you know, pure Persia in this, 
then it's the bow and arrow and the spear. Lloyd, the Athenian army marches to Marathon and blocks the Persian advance on Athens. The, the, the Persians have landed, their boats have arrived on the beach, the infantry have jumped out, there's a few cavalry with them, and they're ready now to march on Athens. What happens? The night before the battle, there seems to be uh, some espionage going on. Uh, it seems that um, some Greek spies uh, have routed out the fact that the presence of the cavalry is not very strong, and this gives um, some kind of confidence to, to the Athenians who are waiting there. The next day, when the sun rises, and this is always the time where you begin your battle before the heat of the day, the Athenians march, advance uh, rapidly across this large terrain, this, this open terrain, and they constantly drive the Persians back and back and back further away from the, the center of the fight until they, they reach the marshy areas um, surrounding the mainlands. And this is really where they, where they quite literally get stuck in the mud. They, they drive them into the marshy. And, and the Persians, we should say, are not big on sword fighting. They've got their arrows. but No, they've got their arrows. They've got their bows. They don't like close contact. And basically what they are now, they're, they're backed up. They're, they are cornered, and this is where the Greeks can get them. And they haven't got enough cavalry to, to fend off the infantry, so they, they're driven into the marshes. Or to have a cavalry swing around behind the Greeks and attack them from the rear. There's none of that there. So they drive them into the marshes, and there they are massacred. Now, then we have to have the most famous bit of the whole story. What produces the name a marathon? This is when one of the individuals, one of the fighters there, he takes it upon himself to run the stretch from the battlefield itself into Athens and beyond, taking the news of this victory uh, with him. So we, we have the first marathon run uh, of all time. And it's 26 miles from the Battle of Marathon. About 26, isn't it? To Athens itself, yeah. When he arrives there, he just sort of tells the message and then drops and dies, dead. yes. And, and I've, I've always wondered why he didn't take a horse. I know, I know. Why didn't he just ride a horse? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to spoil everything. Not but... such a good story, I suppose. The other story I love that comes out of the Battle of Marathon is this one. Herodotus says, the Athenians were the first of the Greeks to endure the sight of Persian clothes. <laughs> and there he's referring to trousers because trousers. it's the first oh, time the right. Greeks had ever seen men wearing trousers. And trousers presumably are useful because you're riding a horse, it stops your legs chaffing. And exactly. Stuff. It's, it's standard Persian wear. But as but far they, as the Greeks are concerned, this is outrageous. Sort it of shows dodgy. again the, the manliness of the Athenians because they could endure looking at leggings. So the, you could say the Greeks were... All marsh and no trousers. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Very nice. I like that. <laughs> the Greeks win. I mean, they, they sort of thrash the Persians, which must have been quite a shock to the Persians. Absolutely. It showed that uh, the Athenians in particular were fine fighters. And of course, the Athenians fed on this reputation for decades afterwards. It did nothing for the, for the Spartan opinion, of course, because, you know, they weren't really present at the battle uh, at all. So this is very much an Athenian victory, and it becomes, therefore, the bedrock of Athenian self-perception from here on in. Mm. Marathon is the most defining moment in Athenian identity from there on in. But do the Persians regard it as such? Is it a watershed no. moment for them? They, no, no, really not at all. No, no reference whatsoever. You know, there is a, a magnificent 
poem that was written in 1942 by Robert Graves, great classicist, war poet, of course. And in the 1940s, he was working for the British propaganda department. So he was dealing with war propaganda every day of his working life. And he writes this fantastic poem called The Persian Version, uh, which title I've stolen constantly. And he says in it, you know, I don't think the Persians dwelt much on this skirmish at Marathon. Uh, for them, uh, it was a, a happy coincidence for the Athenians um, that the wind was in the right direction, uh, the weather was good to them, and that they walked away with some kind of victory. And now they are lauding it on stage, they are telling it to their children, they are spinning it out of control. That's basically what, what Robert Graves' idea was, and I agree with him entirely. This didn't match the Persians. It was annoying to them because it had cost them some money, it had cost them some men, but really it was nothing. But the legacy of it, first of all, it kind of galvanizes the Athenians to think that they are the masters of all Greeks now. But I, what I'm more fascinated by is the legacy long-term. In the 1860s, John Stuart Milne, great Scottish historian and sociologist, wrote, as an event in British history, the Battle of Marathon is of more consequence than the Battle of Hastings. <laughs> wow. Isn't that extraordinary? And what did he mean by that? So he means that without Mad Marathon, we would have been overrun by Orientals. We would have been kowtowing to despots. Uh, and we would be living under tyrants. So just like Gibbon writing about the, the Battle of Tours. That's uh, exactly and how, right. Uh, and how without that, uh, you might have the, the Quran read from the pulpits of Oxford. That's exactly it, you know. So for the Athenians themselves, for Herodotus, and this is the myth he created and has gone right the way down to Boris Johnson, the idea is Greeks equal freedom Persians equal oppression, slavery. That's the way it's always been seen. So what Stuart Mill is saying there, and it's absolutely typical, is this was our moment that we achieved Western freedom, he says. And the truth that you would say, how far tyranny and, uh, tyranny and democracy, that opposition, does that work in reality? We already see that in the Ionian city-states, which were moving towards a democracy, the Persians let it be. It's of no interest to them. So I think, you know, the Greek miracle of sculpture, drama, all of this would have gone on even if the Persians had been their overlords because they didn't micromanage on those kind of levels at all. It's, it's, it's interesting as well, you know, that, that, that kind of legacy played out with somebody William you'll know a lot about, and that's Lord Curzon. When he wrote his Persian question, yeah, really puzzled, he's scratching his head and he says, I can't work it out. It seems that Asiatics would sooner be ruled by Asiatics than by competent Englishmen. I mean, he just cannot get over that. And that's all the legacy of the spin that happens around Marathon. Now, it isn't, it isn't long after Marathon, which, as you've brilliantly told us, you know, matters a lot to the Greeks, but not so much noticed by the Persians. But they will notice Darius is going to die very soon. So is, are there thoughts of succession? We should say Darius is nowhere near this, is he? He hasn't led the, the army in person. Oh, he, no. he goes nowhere near it. Absolutely not. He's, he's, he is still you know, occupied to the Tucked centre of Iran. Absolutely. He is ageing. He begins to quite clearly think about the succession as all monarchs who have a, a, a long reign do. Now, unfortunately, in Iran, as in much of the ancient Near East, there was no uh, rule of primogeniture at all. 
So it was never a given that his eldest son uh, would inherit the throne. It was a matter of, you know, um, uh, a battle of strength, really, among various contestants. Which remains the case right through to the moguls. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. And it's a remarkable thing that nobody ever thought to fix this at all. Perhaps because it means that the strongest one wins rather than some dumb eldest brother. Yeah, absolutely. We know that by the time Darius had even come to the throne, he had several sons. And now, in his old age, he'd had even more by the wives he took after his accession to the throne. And it's one of these sons, the elder son... By Atossa. By Atossa, Cyrus the Great's daughter. This is the one who he promotes as a favourite, Xerxes. Because this is the royal line. He may have... He may have usurped the royal line, but now he wants that blood in, in the succession. Exactly. And Xerxes, of course, has his own blood, Darius's blood, and the blood of Cyrus in his veins, and therefore is, is the ideal thing. Herodotus says something quite interesting as well, which I'm prepared to take quite seriously, for once. Unusually. And, <laughs> I know. And this is, um, he uh, Xerxes became king after Darius's death, and he says, because Atossa had all the power. Now, I don't think we should think of that in in terms of uh, political power, necessarily. But as the mother of the king, of the new king, the new king, she probably had more clout than most other women around her and a lot of, of, of Darius's old courtiers as well. And certainly, of course, she had the year of, her new, of the new king, her son. Uh, and I think there's many, many stories from antiquity and beyond of women helping their sons to the throne and securing those thrones for them. But we have, I mean, we haven't actually said, so Darius dies in 486. He's about 65 years of age. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, Which is a good age in antiquity. Reigned for 36 years. 36 years reigning. What happens across the empire at the death of Darius? And and do they immediately say, well, you know, Xerxes are our king? There is a mourning period without a doubt. In terms of the politics of it, it's important to, to get the name of the new king out as quickly as possible. Uh, and Xerxes tries to do that. But of course, successions are always the moment for breakaways. Uh, and the two breakaways come here. The first is uh, in Babylon, uh, that city which is always on edge as far as the Achaemenids are concerned. Um, Xerxes goes there himself and, and quells it. Xerxes is now about 32. We would imagine something like this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he goes there and he actually sit, sits and holds power. And then Egypt rebels. Now, he can't have that happen because. Egypt is the cash cow of the empire. And where the grain comes from. And also the, the breadbasket of the empire as well. So he leads a force into Egypt himself, together with some of his brothers uh, and the army behind him, and has a success in putting down the rebellion. And that really galvanizes Xerxes. He suddenly thinks, ah, I'm an able warrior king. Like yeah. my dad was and my grandfather was. I'm just going to evoke Gerard Butler, Spartan Tartan moment. So in the 300s, Xerxes is a, is a, is a gilded pervert, is what they do to him, don't they? They yeah. make him just quite a sicko, yeah. covered in gold. And does this link straight back to Herodotus being rude about him? Herodotus is remarkably rude about Xerxes because it plays to his narrative. He loves Cyrus the Great. He has no time for Cambyses. He loves Darius the Great, but the worst of the kings has to be Xerxes, because it's Xerxes, of course, that actually has the audacity to go into Greece, to lead his troops there, and to do some considerable damage. So as far as the kind of, the, the you know, he's playing the cards, Xerxes has to be the supervillain of the whole story. 
And so he gets terrible press. Oh, what does he say? How bitchy is he? Uh, well, it's it's more about you know, like what he does rather than what he says. So he creates a Xerxes who, for instance, um, one very famous story, you know, he's trampling with his troops through uh, Anatolia and he sees this beautiful plane tree. And Xerxes, just crazy Xerxes, he falls in love with this tree. Oh, and, that's and, 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 decorates and, and, it. And, and put, <laughs> yeah. you know, puts his jewellery on it. Says to her, oh, no, I'll put a guard here to look after this tree forever. I love this tree so much. This is the Greeks being sort of rude about Persian gardening. Yeah, so what they, what they don't understand, and this is what I'm all about in my work, is to try to look for the Persian version that sits below the surface. Mm. The Persians did honour trees. They worshipped trees in the way that many peoples of the ancient Near East held sacred groves uh, to be special. And indeed in, in ancient India, where you have all the uh, all the actions of the trees. That's exactly it. There were spirits in these trees, exactly. Yep. We have a little cylinder seal showing Xerxes hanging um, a, a necklace on these trees. So this is Herodotus taking a Persian truism, twisting it so that his, his audience say, whoa, weirdo. And the same goes for that very, very famous story where Xerxes is said to be whipping the sea at the Hellespont with iron chains. He's so angry that the sea is is uh, not allowing his army to cross. There sits the Persian version beneath that of, again, uh, the offering of goods, iron goods, swords, but also gold and silver to water spirits. This is what Herodotus does to Xerxes, you know? Um, he he makes him into this kind of figure of fun, almost, hubristic, without any doubt, narcissistic too. And that tradition actually goes into other ancient sources. In the book of Esther, which is set in uh, the reign of Xerxes, the Xerxes of that story is a bit of a buffoon, really. He's a bit of a comic character. You know, everybody's pulling the wool over his eyes. But the world's most powerful man. In reality, the most powerful man there was, absolutely. Okay, so, I mean, you know, Xerxes, is one of his first tests has to go and put down a revolt in Babylon. There is another story about him that he takes the golden statue uh, of Marduk and melts it down. Uh, true or false? False. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, so, you know? so, so there's all this talk that he, you know, dis, you know, he desecrates the temples, he pulls down the ziggurat of Marduk, he, he melts down the statue. This is typical spin... Hashtag fake news. Exactly. That anybody writes about the enemy king, essentially. Um, the hijacking of, of cult statues, the, the melting down of them, the destruction of the temples, yada, yada, yada. It goes on and on. You know, it's it's just standard what is expected to be written, really, about a bad king. When Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon, before Cyrus the Great, um, fell from power, essentially Cyrus the Great said pretty much the same thing about him as well. It's it's a, a literary trope that we get constantly repeated. Okay. Well, you have you have set the scene so brilliantly because in the next episode we are going to be talking about Xerxes, the much misunderstood <laughs> and <laughs> much his dealings, maligned. the much maligned and his uh, invasion, invasion of, of Greece. Greece. So, oh. I mean, you've left us on, in a perfect place to do that. Um, huge thanks to you, Lloyd. Oh, you're so welcome. Absolutely magnificent. And we have to say, you've got to read anyone who's enjoyed this podcast uh, and, and Lloyd's previous uh, appearance. The Persians, The Age of the Great Kings is my book of the year. I absolutely loved it. And it goes to the spectacular climax. Keep going right <laughs> through. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And also, it's a book that, you know, Empire Club, if you sign up to the Empire Club, my friends, 
you'll get it at a discount. So www.empirepoduk.com. That's it. That's where you have to go. Uh, do you want to tell everyone what we're doing on Thursday? Join us again on Thursday as we discuss the Battle of Thermopylae. Till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. Bye from me, William Drumple.